Good to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, if you guys could open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 35 is where we're going to be starting. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That's why you guys are over there. We're going to be looking today at two of my favorite stories in all the Gospels, stories that I've heard since I was a child, but that I, I never tire of hearing. I'm still awestruck with wonder at our Lord every time I contemplate these events. Uh, and so, it is, a, it is an honor and a privilege to, to get to dive in and look at these things in the life of our Lord Jesus. But to kind of set the stage of why these events, these are actually particularly important for us to contemplate in this historical moment where we are right now. Um, I think most people would, uh, would quickly agree that where we are right now, 2020, is a moment in our history defined by fear. People are afraid right now. People are afraid of a lot of things. Immediately jumps to mind, there's a lot of fear related to the COVID-19 virus. Perhaps afraid for your own health or afraid for the health of a loved one who's, who's more immune compromised and at risk. Uh, other people aren't necessarily all that afraid of the virus itself, but they're afraid of what they think corrupt politicians might do exploiting the current circumstances. Still others are afraid of economic ramifications, job losses and businesses closing, what's happening to, to housing markets, and, and people, are, people are afraid of the impact of these things on them. We live in a time where people are especially afraid of law enforcement officers that might overstep their authority and abuse their power, or on the other hand, of rioters and looters who might go beyond peaceful protests to destroying property or harming people. Whatever side of any issue that you're on right now, you're probably in a camp that's surrounded by fear of something. It's an election year, and as with the last several election years, I, I don't mostly sense a lot of positive enthusiasm about a particular candidate but instead, most people are voting primarily driven on their fear of the other guy, what he'll do if he gets in office, and we have to stop him. They're driven, we're, we're driven right now, we're just in an environment where we are surrounded by fear. And these are only a few examples we could turn to. And as Christians, I think we all have even a reflexive sense that living in a perpetual state of fear of these things around us is not good. But at the same time, how do you just stop fearing? It's an emotion. It's a response. We're surrounded by things that are outside our control and yet that have a great deal of impact on us. We can do little to them, but they can do much to us. And that provokes in us a sense of fear. And so we, we have, a, we, we have a, a, a reflex that we ought not to be living in perpetual fear, but many of us don't know how. We don't know how to stop 
being afraid of these things. And so the message today, I've titled, Putting Fear in Its Place. You see, the the solution is not to learn how to just stop fearing. Fear, in fact, is not inherently bad. Fear is good. It is a God-given gift. He made us to fear. But fear needs to be in the right place. And uh, many of us, uh, if you grew up in evangelical churches, probably as a kid memorized Joshua 1.9. And it always comes to mind when we're talking about the topic of fear. Where God commands Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And we read that and we're like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be afraid. And we try to muster up this sense of courage and bravery and push down our fear. And then we get back out in the world and all of a sudden we discover we don't have the willpower to just do that. So God commands Joshua not to be afraid and yet on his own strength, is Joshua capable of simply not fearing? But I think it's important to look even at this verse before we jump into our main text in context and understand when we read things like this, what is God saying? Because he wasn't telling Joshua, don't be afraid of anything. Joshua was about to lead the people of Israel across the Jordan into the promised land to face an overwhelming enemy who outnumbered them, who was was armed and large and strong and powerful one generation earlier, God had brought Israel to the same place and out of fear of those people, they'd refused to go in. And so here a generation later, Joshua was standing there ready to lead the people across the Jordan in and God is reminding them, do not be afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid of that enemy. God has given them a promise, I will give you the land and therefore you do not need to be afraid. Why? Because God is with you. So do not fear that enemy, do not fear those circumstances, however overwhelming they look, because God's with you. Don't be afraid of that. And we see that that's the context because the very next couple verses, right after God says that to Joshua, he gets people moving. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over the Jordan and go take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess." But as we read on, right after they pass over the Jordan, which, by the way, God stopped the river miraculously. They walked across on dry ground, God showing His power, showing He was with them. They walk on in, and right afterwards, once we get to Joshua chapter 4, they're told, Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you, for you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Do not be afraid of that enemy and the land, but you better be afraid. There is something that you ought to fear. And, and, and this isn't just a temporary state to get you to a later stage of, of maturity. You ought to fear the Lord forever. 
You see, fear isn't the problem. Misplaced fear is the problem. Fearing the right thing actually gives us the courage to face things that we would otherwise be afraid of. You see, if I recognize who God is, if I see the might and power of the hand of God, if I recognize who He is in His greatness, His glory, His holiness, that there, was no, there is no one and nothing that can rival this transcendent God who is above and beyond all. And if I look at that God and I tremble, then all of a sudden, with Paul, I can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If I truly fear God and God has loved me and promised to be with me, I need not fear anything else. If I tremble at the Lord, I can stand with steady hands in the face of all else. So let's take a look, diving into the Gospels, of how Jesus perfectly illustrated this to his followers and how the, the Gospel of Mark lays this out for us. So again, beginning in Mark 4.35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? You, uh, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So here's our first of the two episodes we're going to look at today. So first, Jesus and his disciples are getting in the boat. And all of a sudden, a storm comes out of nowhere, violent storm, waves crashing, pouring water into the boat, and these men know that they are done for. And in a sense, we don't need any help understanding why this is scary. We get drowning is scary. Uh, drowning at sea is a frightful thing. At the same time, I think sometimes we can miss just how mortified these men would have been of the might of the sea. We think of the sea primarily in terms of pleasure and luxury. We go to the sea on purpose because we, we think it's beautiful and fun to relax there. We go out on boats to do deep sea fishing for leisure, even pay to go on long cruises to spend weeks out at sea. In the ancient world, the sea was not viewed as a beautiful thing to go spend your time in. The sea is the most likely thing to kill you. Every traveler knew that the most deadly place for you to be was on a boat out at sea. Mo many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen. They worked at sea. They depended on the sea. But they also, every single day that they went out to do their work, 
You bet they were hoping and praying a storm like this was not going to happen. They lived in every day with a sense of their own mortality, knowing that the sea might claim their lives. When the book of Revelation wants to paint in images that the, that the uh, ancient reader of the New Testament time period would really understand the paradisic future, the symbols that it uses to paint the new heavens and the new earth, one of them is, and there will be no sea. To us, we're like, well, why would you get rid of the sea? The sea is beautiful. I love the sea. To the ancient reader, they would have been like, amen. No sea, no threat, no imminent death hanging over me all the time. The sea was terrifying. And when we get that, we realize just how significant it is that of all things, the sea, at the very word of Jesus, laid down on its face and bowed in submission to its king. That Jesus could command the sea with but a word, tell the wind and the sea to basically shut up and sit down. And they did. And they stopped and went silent at his command. This, this struck the disciples. This was huge. This wasn't just a scary thing. This was the scary thing. And it was no match for the Lord. And so they say, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Note that they didn't think he was a prophet speaking for God for whom the winds and the seas obeyed. They recognized that at this moment, the winds and the seas obeyed Jesus himself. It was his own authority. Jesus could tell the wind and the sea what to do, and they would listen. Jesus had all authority. Jesus was speaking as the one who could command the sea. And when they asked, who is this, I actually think as religious Jews, that their question was rhetorical. They knew who that had to be. They knew there was only one who could command the sea like that. There was only one Lord of the wind and the waves. I'll give you one example. There are several Old Testament passages we could turn to. But if we look at Psalm 107, it, it's a very fitting description of exactly what we're looking at here. Psalm 107 says, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. You could picture the disciples as we read this in the Psalms. Master, don't you know we're perishing? So it continues. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. He let, uh, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. 
This psalm is practically describing the same story from the Gospels that we just read. And yet, who was it that the disciples went and called on who stopped the storm? And in fact, when we look at the key verse, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Um, it was an ancient uh, translation into Greek, the common tongue of the, of the uh, New Testament era, ancient translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, which Jews were using even before the time of the New Testament, and so which the New Testament authors quote from frequently, not all the time, but they quote from that Greek translation. And in it, it makes this verse even more explicit. It says, and he commands the storm, and it is calmed into a gentle breeze, and the waves are still. So the way they render this verse makes the parallel even stronger in the way that the New Testament audience would have been familiar with. And so they would have quickly seen exactly who this is. So when the disciples are saying, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's a rhetorical question. They recognize, perhaps it's striking them for the first time, who this is that they are traveling with, who their Lord and Messiah is, who they're in the boat with, and they their response is fear, and it should be. But in fearing the Lord, all of a sudden, the sea's no big deal. The Lord's with us. He's in control of the waves. If He lets the waves rage, He has a reason for doing so. He can stop them at any moment. I fear Him. I don't care what the waves do. But we'll see more of that as we go. So then, Mark moves from here to, to the next episode. And in fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three Gospels that tell these stories, always put these two stories back to back. They always keep them together. Now, you might say, well, that's because chronologically they happened back to back. Jesus traveled over the sea, and then this next thing happened. And of course, that's true. But the Gospels don't always put their stories in chronological order. They sometimes uh, rearrange them in a way that reinforce the ideas or the themes that are being taught, which is why the Gospels don't, even when they tell the same stories, don't always tell them in the same order as each other. And that's okay. The whole point isn't, isn't strict chronology, but to report these true events in a way that communicates who Jesus is, what His message is, why He died, what the Gospel is, all those things. But these stories are always back-to-back. In every gospel that tells them, they're always kept together. And I think the reason is more than chronology. I think that these two stories are telling us the same thing about who Jesus is and the same thing about what our response should be. I think that there's a good reason to keep these stories close together. And so we continue on into Mark chapter 5, where he picks up in the next verse. And they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we want to pause here and really reflect on this. So Jesus reaches the other side, the region of the Gerasenes, and he gets out at this place. 
And this man is running out to meet him, and then Mark stops and gives us the backstory on this man. He really wants us to understand who this man is to, to really build up and set the stage for the conflict that is about to happen. And so he pauses and steps back and tells us about this man. This isn't just any ordinary man. This man is filled with demons, unclean spirits. Rebellious, sinful, spiritual beings have come in him, polluted his mind and body. This man is violent and uncontrollable. They've tried to bind him and tie him up to get him under control, and they can't. With seeming supernatural strength, the man shatters metal chains and shackles that bind him up. No one has the strength to subdue him. And lest you think maybe with weapons drawn you could come and take such a man down, it tells you that the man scoffs and scorns at pain. The man's going around slashing himself with stones. What are you going to do to him? What wound could you deliver? He wounds himself. He runs around in the tombs, living among the dead, crawling around the graves, howling and wailing and shrieking through the night. The people of this region were mortified of this man. The other gospels in telling this story mention the fact that people were afraid to travel on the roads that would go by where this man was running around. This, this, this man was all of their fears embodied in flesh before them. This was the living terror of these people. And he was unstoppable. No man could subdue him. So Mark has built this up. What is going to happen when Jesus comes face to face with fear enfleshed? with this unholy terror raging down before him. And so, when he saw Jesus from afar, the man ran and fell down before him, crying out with a loud voice. He said, What have, I, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is this man so afraid of? What does he think Jesus can do to him that no other man can do? No one can harm him. Torment, he torments himself, slashing himself with stones. What torment could he be afraid of? What could Jesus possibly do? to the demons possessing the body of this man. Yet this isn't an isolated incident. Earlier in Mark, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very first story that Mark tells us about Jesus' public ministry and preaching, he comes into a synagogue and he's teaching there when all of a sudden a man with a, with a demon, with an unclean spirit, comes in and a very similar thing happens. He falls down before Jesus and in Mark 1.24 he says, what have, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What were they afraid of? First and foremost, who Jesus is. 
and who he is spoke, in their case, to what he could do. You see, I can't harm an angel or a demon. I have no power over a spirit. A spirit is not the same kind of being as me. They don't have bodies of matter, of flesh and blood that I can go damage an organ or draw blood or do harm to them the way we can do to one another. Now, I, there's nothing I can do. A spirit need not fear me. But the spirit was afraid of Jesus. These spirits were terrified of Jesus. Jesus tells us why. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a lot not to be afraid of. Don't fear the things that can only destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. Storms in the ocean could kill the body, but they can't, can't do anything to you after that. Corrupt politicians, tyrannical governments can kill the body, can't do anything to the spirit. Diseases, viruses can kill the body, can't do anything to the soul. But Jesus says, fear the one. There is one, one who can destroy even the soul, even spirit. One who can do that. These spirits, these evil spirits, recognized that Jesus was that one. He was the one who could destroy, who could torment. And recognize the parallel between those terms. Destroy here doesn't mean obliterate out of existence and they're gone. These are paralleled together. Destroy and torment. And Jesus says in, in Matthew uh, 10, 28 there, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The idea is an ongoing punishment. The demons feared that. They know that Jesus, Jesus is the one and only one who can do that. Jesus is God. They recognized the holy, mighty, immeasurable, incomprehensible one who stood before them. And all that which men fear and have no power over, fell down before Jesus, quaking, trembling, shuddering, and begging for mercy. So Jesus continues. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it 
described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So it's interesting, if you note in verse uh, 15, Mark actually specifies that they were afraid, not primarily because their livestock had been destroyed. This wasn't primarily a practical fear. They, the, what, what, what really scared them was when they walked up and saw next to Jesus the man who used to have the demons in him now sitting in his right mind. That scared them. That seems weird to us. He healed the man. This was a positive thing. Why would that scare them? Well, it scared them for the exact same reason that the disciples had been scared in the boat after the storm was calm. Remember their question. Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This crowd, all of a sudden, this demon-possessed man, the demons are gone. The thing which they feared most has been subdued with but a word. Who is this man? That even the demons tremble at his voice and scatter at his command. So you see, they feared Jesus not so much because of what he might do, but because of who he was. And once we realize this, their reaction of begging Jesus to leave might not be as inappropriate as we reflexively think. We assume that it was entirely wrong for the crowd to react the way they did, to come, Jesus came and healed this man, and you come and beg him to leave. But it may be a little more nuanced than that. There may, it may be that there was something right in this crowd's reaction. And to back this up, I again want to step back to the Old Testament and show an example here. In Deuteronomy chapter 5. See, in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses is recounting the scene at Sinai. He's reminding them when they received the Ten Commandments. One of the most important scenes in the whole Hebrew Scriptures. So they've been freed from Egypt. God has delivered them out with a mighty hand. They come to Mount Sinai, and there God literally has the mountain on fire. Smoke and fire cover the mountain and billow out over the sky, and they're standing in this horrifying presence at the base of the mountain, and out of the fire and the smoke, the very voice of God spoke to them the Ten Commandments. This is before the Ten Commandments were written on the stone. First God spoke them out loud, and the crowd there heard the very voice of God speaking these commandments. And then Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy, Exodus tells the story first. Deuteronomy here is reminding them of the story, walking back through what happened, but he draws out an important point here. And so we read, And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes, 
and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear. All, so they're t- talking to Moses, telling him, go, you go near to the Lord. Go near and hear all the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So they hear Moses or they hear the the voice of God, and then they go to Moses and they say, okay, we heard the very voice of God coming out of the fire. And in his holiness, in his might, in his fearsome, awesome presence, we are but sin, sinful men. We are but flesh. We are so finite and little and nothing before this mighty, holy, transcendent God. His very voice ought to have consumed us. We ought to have died at the voice of God. We don't want to take that chance again. Moses, you go talk to God and you come back and tell us what God says and we'll listen and we'll do whatever he says. But if we hear the voice of God like this again, it might kill us. And again, our reflex is to think, no, no, you're wrong here. But listen to what God says. And the Lord Heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. If the people of Israel could have maintained the fear of God that they had at that moment when they could hear his actual voice, when God had literally set a mountain on fire before their eyes, displaying his glory and his power, when they recognized his holiness and their sinful frailty and humbled themselves trembling before their mighty God, if they could have kept that heart They never would have turned away. God says so, right here. This this is where this is where we have to sometimes realize God is more dreadfully awesome than sometimes we give him credit for. And when we realize that and we tremble truly tremble at who he is. It's life-changing. All of a sudden, anything else around us just doesn't seem scary anymore. If our God is for us, who can be against us? You see, what happened with Israel 
They walked away from this, and they didn't keep that heart. And they went into the land, and they turned to idols. But what did they turn to idols for? The ancients didn't worship idols just for the fun of it. What did the Israelites turn to idols for? They appealed to idols for good harvests, for lack of of droughts or famines, so for economic security. They appealed to their idols so that there would be no plagues or illnesses in their land for health. They appealed to idols to protect them from their enemies. They hedged their bets against the things they were afraid of by worshiping a multitude of gods in hope that any one of them might protect them. They turned to these idols because of the things they feared. And if you think about that list I just gave, it sounds an awful lot like the things we're afraid of right now in 2020. Our economic security, our health, those we consider to be our enemies, whether political or social or whatever category, whatever camp you're in, we fear these things just as they did. And that fear turned them to idols, turned them to seek security in something else because they feared the things. And they feared the things because they did not fear their God. Had they but truly feared the Lord... these other things would not have dismayed them. Just as the fears are the same in ancient Israel and where we stand today, so the solution is the same. We need to put fear in its place. We ought to fear God far more, and in so doing, we will fear the things of the world immeasurably less. So often we can go through a day scarcely thinking about our Lord, about who He is, about His holiness. We get so distracted by the things of life we can get through day after day giving scarcely a thought to how frightfully awesome our God is. But if if we meditate on His dreadful might and holiness, more often, His promise, and lo, I will be with you always to the very end of the age, becomes a far, far more life-changing encouragement. If we realize that the most terrifying, awesome, powerful wonder in all the universe has promised to be with us and deliver us and carry us through the trials of this life, if we fear Him, then by His promise, we need fear nothing else. And then, like that man who was delivered from the legion, we can go and proclaim our awesome God throughout our city and beyond. The story ends. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, 
but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim, not just to his family and friends at his own town, it says he went and to proclaim in the whole Decapolis. That was the whole major 10-city region in which this was. He traveled throughout the whole region to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, so much that you have promised to be with us, to deliver us, that you love us. But God, give us, give us a greater glimpse in mind and heart of who you are. Let us tremble at your holy glory. May we shudder at your might and power. May we remember day by day who it is we serve. You, the maker and sustainer of all things. The Lord of every nation. The Lord of all nature. The Lord of anything that may harm us. May we tremble before you and therefore stand with steady hands before everything else. Give us boldness before this world by granting us a fear of you. God, we love you. And we know that you love us. May we honor you as who you truly are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.